Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the My Country Kind of Sucks Right Now, But At Least It's Not Yours edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. First on the show today, the presidential campaign in the U.S. has deteriorated into a really odd spectacle. But there actually is an economics angle to discuss this week. We are going to look at a new analysis of each candidate's competing tax proposals. And then the British pound and Brexit. We're going to tell you what it looks like from America, give you the yank perspective. What does a pound's decline mean for the UK economy? What was behind the flash crash in the pound last week? And is there a market structure problem here? I'm joined by two of my favorite yanks in the American office, in the New York office. They're giving me funny looks. Mary Childs. FT's U.S. investment correspondent. You don't like that term, do you? You don't um, like being called I'm, a Yank. I'm from the South, so Yankee has a different connotation. Oh, you're right. It does. It's offensive. Okay. Well, <laughs> too bad. All right. You've been you've been culturally appropriated yeah, fair right, by, by uh, us in New York. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. And making her debut on Alpha Chat is Alex Skaggs, my colleague on Alphaville. Alex, how are you? I'm good. Um, I'm if, less offended by being called a Yankee. Good, because you're from slightly. Pennsylvania or something? Yes. Okay. I guess so that counts. True. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, would you take offense if I labeled you Alpha Chat's new market structure nerd? Absolutely not. You're complimented? Um, well, the thing is that I think that calling it a nerdy topic is very short-sighted. So. Okay, fine. <laughs> I enjoy it a lot. Some that's kind of that's good. Yeah, welcome on. welcome to your debut. Thanks for insulting me right out of the bat. That's awesome. Okay, uh, guys, let's talk about the tax proposals from each of the two candidates. Okay, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Uh, the Tax Policy Center has just come out with a new analysis. Uh, it's big, it's important, it's rich and full of information, but I want to get something out of the way first, okay? Can we just first acknowledge what's going on here and put our cards on the table? Because I don't want this to disintegrate into something where we're just bashing Trump, even though he deserves it. All right. So let's just put it out there. All right. Donald Trump is an erratic talking tangerine whose campaign is sinking into the ground right now, and he deserves it. We all agree with this. I think that's offensive to some tangerines who, you know, have a lot of diversity. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yes, we can put all that we aside. Can do that. Okay, good. Yeah. Alex, this oh, is sorry. gonna work for you. Yeah, I just have to turn off the outrage button. The outrage meter. Yeah, yes. the outrage meter is off. Right. Yeah. So on the other so side, the I Democrats have nominated offended. Hillary Clinton, who's basically uh, a technocratic centrist. She's not perfect. She has many flaws, in some cases, very meaningful flaws. But these are all flaws within the normal boundaries of U.S. politics, I think. So there, <laughs> our ideological cards are on the table. Now let's talk about taxes, okay? Okay. We're going to start with Donald Trump's tax plan, all right? According to this analysis... The effect on the budget of Trump's tax plan would be to raise federal debt by $7.2 trillion in the next decade. The tax cuts by and large would go to the highest earning households, uh, the middle and lower earning households, 
would sort of have a negligible effect on them. They would get a tax cut, but a very small one. Alex, it's your first time on the show. Uh, what do you think of this plan? Well, it looks like his his individual plan is sort of a mess because, like you said, it's it's weirdly re- – it's not redistributing wealth, but it's it's really lopsided in favor of the most wealthy people, obviously. But what I thought was really interesting was one of these uh, proposals that he had to allow people who own companies to take the corporate tax rate of 15% mm-hmm. that he's proposing. And, like, I can just imagine this sort of, like, weird – weird world where like everyone working for a company is also like their own company. It's like the corporations or people thing taken to its logical conclusion, right? It's really funny. And so people who actually can incorporate themselves and say like, oh, well, it's my company and I'm just contracting with the FT, they'll they'll actually get a big benefit, which seems really funny. Which is funny in, in addition because both sides are, you know, both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have said that they will you know, close the quote loophole. It's not quite a loophole of carried interest. And that sort of opens up a new and five percentage points lower, you know, space for a very similar area where you can you can lower your your average tax rate down significantly and, and you know, be a, a corporation people too. I think that's a great point. And it's a bit it, it sort of muddles Donald Trump's assertion that he's closing the, the carried interest loophole in the first place. Let's stay on the topic of uh, lowering this rate and let's explain to our listeners exactly what happening here though. Okay. So this was something that was controversial uh, earlier in the campaign. It wasn't exactly clear what Donald Trump wanted to do. It now looks like what he would do is lower the taxes on closely held companies, right? In other words, uh, these are called pass-through companies where essentially if you own the company, the profits of that company pass through to you directly. So you use a similar tax schedule as individuals, like people who are sort of wage slaves and just make their money the normal way by earning a salary, right? He's saying that for those people, they'd be able to lower their tax rate to 15%, right? The people that tend to own these businesses, right, do make more money than the people who tend to work for them, right? And so there's a question of like fairness here. Uh, That's one way in which this new tax plan would work. The other way is that it would just lower the highest end marginal tax rate from 39.6% for the best off to 33%. And that's the other way that this thing would raise the deficit uh, and put more money into the hands of like rich people. I mean, I'm trying not to, this is alpha chat, not C-SPAN. So we're allowed to be, we're we're allowed to be judgmental about this, but I'm also trying to approach this in a way that's at least somewhat, you know, I don't know if unbiased is the right word, but at least that's, you know, considering the facts on the table, the fairness consequences here, do they not strike you guys as problematic? Definitely. And sort of antithetical to a lot of what you would think his supporters, you know, if you look at the demographics of his supporters, what would want, right? If they are the kind of middle class who feel like they've been left behind, that's the narrative that we've either been, you know, selling or been consuming, you know, the the coal miners and the various industries that have, you know, allegedly left the United States. It, it's that that demographic and that group of people who are reaping no benefits from this plan. And in fact, it's going to worsen the problem that they've been subjected to, which is this massive growing inequality. So I understand that a lot of the the reason why people support him and the things that they say, he's, oh, he's a great businessman. He's a builder. You know, he grew a company. He's very successful. So all of that is part of part and parcel to the appeal. But the fact that it even in advertising does not extend any benefits to them confuses me. Okay. Alex? 
Yeah, I think that it's entirely unfair. It's it's sort of ridiculous. And also, if you look a little bit into the family stuff, it's funny because I know um, Donald's daughter, Ivanka, has been touting her, her family tax benefits that they're sort of reforming. It's supposed to make things easier for women. But then if you look more closely, um, single parents actually lose out in a big way from this because what they're doing is they're cutting the – they're not allowing people to file as like a head of a household. So if you are taking care of a child just on your own or if you're even you know on your own taking care care of a family member who who can't support themselves, you will no longer be able to file for a special status. There's a, an interesting pedigree to this tax plan that I want to talk about, right? We know from various reports that Trump was heavily advised by Stephen Moore, by Larry Kudlow, and by Art Laffer. These are like the old time supply side guys from the 1970s and 1980s. Essentially, it seems like they have been willing to abandon all of their other beliefs just to make sure that corporate tax rates and high and marginal tax rates would come down. And what I mean is this. Trump is vociferously anti-trade. He's obviously anti-immigration, right? He doesn't have what I would call like a traditionally pro-market approach in his campaigning, if anything, quite the opposite. He's promising everything to everybody. He's saying that people will be able to keep all the benefits that they've been promised to this point while also cutting taxes, while also lowering marginal tax rates on rich people. It sort of is in line with his famously indulgent, problematically indulgent personality that he's trying to tell everybody that they can have everything. And then in terms of making this something close to revenue neutral or whatever, he just he just says, well, we'll figure it out, right? He doesn't specify any of the tax cuts. It's kind of fascinating to me that he's brought these guys in and that they've gone along with it. Is this as puzzling to you guys as it is to me? Yes. I've been I've been talking to some supporters and donors in recent weeks and trying to kind of parse where they come down and what they're, you know, if they object to anything, what they object to about Hillary Clinton's campaign or positions. And the only, I mean, this isn't, this doesn't go to the, to the tax issue, but the, the main thing has, it has come down to protecting the constitution and remaining or hewing closer to a small government, which also strikes me as confusing because that does not, I don't see that in his words and actions. Um, so I'm not, uh, I'm still confused. Yeah. Alex, <laughs> there's kind of an intriguing like mashup here of, on the one hand, a traditional right versus left battle, right? Lower taxes, including lower taxes on rich people uh, from the right, where the idea is that that'll spur economic growth and that'll make up for the shortfall in revenues. And then on the left, and we're going to get to Clinton's tax plan in a minute, uh, higher taxes on rich people and leave everybody else alone. All right. So it's a mashup of that versus Trump's also blatantly anti-market rhetoric where free trade isn't something he very much believes in. And obviously, to the extent that you consider immigration an economic issue, and I think you should, uh, he's obviously very much anti-immigrant. Yeah, and it's really funny because um, a lot of developed countries have a demographic problem, right? You've got people aging, you've got productivity falling. And the other side of that is, okay, so we need a younger population. And um, immigrants actually do tend to have, you know, they tend to help the population dynamics in a country. They tend to be productive. It's sort of like an infusion of new energy almost. And Trump seems to be patently against that and then saying at the same time that he's going to help growth, which doesn't make a ton of sense to me. 
a lot of the people that that I've been talking to, you know, talk amongst themselves in, in the finance industry, and and they it is striking the dwindling numbers of of finance professionals who either support Trump or will say that they support Trump. Um, there's so many that on the other side that you know ostensibly should be in favor of way lower taxes and should be in favor of things that purportedly help U.S. economic growth, but so many of these people who are not necessarily partisans and even Republicans. You know who who traditionally had had followed those uh, those ideas and maxims are flipping the other side and saying, yeah, maybe it would it would do things for you. You know, I would make be able to keep more of the money that I've earned, but the impact on U.S. economic growth over the long term in thirty years, where am I going to be? I think Jamie Dimon has said this. I have to fact I think check Ken myself. Ken Bone said this in the last <laughs> after the last debate. He said, "My own personal right. interests, okay, That's would be better served by Trump." But I don't want all of these offsetting effects for other parts of the population. He mentioned gay marriage, which was not in the um, in the paradigm of a lot of these people that I've been talking to. So it, it is. I mean, that was an interesting thing that, that an analyst pointed out to me the other day is that you have this kind of migration um, from some diehard Republicans who are like, OK, I would love to keep money. However, I cannot because the sacrifice for the country and global economic growth, which would then impact my own wealth, would be too great. Okay, uh, let's talk about uh, Clinton's plan now and how it compares with Trump's, okay? Uh, here's what the effect, according to the Tax Policy Center, of the Clinton plan would be on the budget. If you include interest costs, as we did with Trump's, uh, it would actually have the debt fall by $1.4 trillion over roughly the next decade. Almost all of that reduction would be assessed through higher taxes on the highest 1% of incomes. There's a few things that it does. Uh, it includes a big surcharge of 4% on incomes over $5 million, but a kind of um, a kind of graduated schedule starts kicking in at $1 million. And then it does other things like close the carried interest loophole, though I don't think that actually raises that much money. Mm -hmm. And it also would raise taxes on uh, passing your estate from one generation to the next quite a bit, right? This to me seems like a kind of standard democratic plan. It might have some harmful effects on incentives, right? If you're an economist and you believe in 101, that could happen if you're looking for something here. But this looks like kind of a moderately advancing redistributive agenda. Everybody's just nodding their heads at me like, yeah, whatever, dude. We're you done said talking it. about you this. You did it. Um, no, I just was going to make a sort of a partial joke. Alex was talking about the demographic, the aging populations, et cetera. And one thing that I sort of got hung up on in Hillary's plan was it doesn't really help and possibly a little bit hurts families with no children. So it's sort of by your taxes incentivized to have children, which would be like super great for U.S. economic growth going mm -hmm. forward. So um, have more babies, says Hillary Clinton. Right. Alex, totally. what do you think? Well, it's funny because I think that on the individual side, the plan makes a lot of sense. But then you look at her proposals for corporate taxation and they're completely – it's like total status quo. And I think from a global and like even an international perspective – I think it sort of ignores that a lot of people, a lot of extremely smart people say that our corporate tax code is broken. You know, it's you've got companies doing inversions, you've got global taxation, you've got a, an enormous amount of corporate earnings that are just sitting offshore. And Clinton's only proposal is, OK, let's make it harder for companies to leave. But that that does it sort of is addressing the symptom, but not the cause of Lack the problem. Lack of ambition on yeah. her part. You yeah. Think, yeah. But then again, it's, it's got to be hard to. Yeah. Sure. Right. I wouldn't say that. No. <laughs> no, that's fair and inadequacy um, there. Um, I, I will take a crack at playing devil's advocate here, right, and see what you guys think about this. There is a kind of overarching economic theory, and I think there's a lot to it, uh, that the world right now 
is suffering from a safe asset shortage and in fact has been for a very long time and that one of the problems in the run-up to the financial crisis was that when there was a shortage of safe assets, a lot of investors ended up pining for almost anything that had even the illusion of safety and the financial sector started creating that in the shape of quite a few things, but it included things like private label mortgage-backed securities, at least their safest tranches, right? And one of the safest, probably the safest asset in the world is U.S. Treasuries, okay? And if you have a plan that raises the federal debt by as much as Trump's does or just raises it even a little bit, right, it means that the government has to issue more of those treasuries. And so when investors are looking for safe assets, they at least are buying treasuries, which genuinely are safe instead of asking the financial sector to generate stuff that looks safe but really isn't and has underlying fragilities and vulnerabilities, right? I think there might be something to that. I, this is not are you, necessarily are you a devil's advocate. My devil's advocate. I know it's a little meta, okay, and I'm I don't necessarily espouse this because I think that um, he's walked it back since. But what about the whole thing about renegotiating treasuries and going around to your counterparties and like sort of defaulting? <laughs> right. So like, sorry about the Good safety. Point. Under, undermining <laughs> himself on that, right? Yeah. Right. So there's there's also another problem with this, which is that when you're talking about raising the deficit that much, you lower the ability to fight a future recession or a future financial crisis because there's political pressure not to raise the debt at a time when you most need to. Um, The other thing is is it's just a huge missed opportunity. And this was, I think, the problem with the Bush tax cuts, which were also skewed towards the wealthy, right? The problem, I think, with the Bush tax cuts wasn't that it raised the budget deficit by so much, um, and it wasn't that it raised the national debt by so much, but that it was a missed opportunity to address underlying structural issues like infrastructure deteriorating and inequality, right? Mm -hmm. Right. That's it. Can't argue with you okay, there. Okay, good. Uh, then I guess we're done with that topic. Moving on. Brexit and the pound, guys. We are going to now talk about what it looks like from over here in New York, okay? Uh, our British colleagues lost their minds years ago, okay? But a few months, things got really bad, okay? Uh, the UK obviously voted to leave the European Union, but last week, Prime Minister Theresa May gave this, what I would characterize as a very illiberal speech to the Conservative Party conference, where essentially she signaled that the UK more than anything wanted to preserve its sovereignty over immigration issues. And if that meant that it would have to sacrifice better access to the EU single market when it did leave the EU, then so be it. That was the signal. She didn't use those exact words, but she essentially set a deadline of next year for starting the Brexit negotiations, right? The reaction was really bad. And we had, I think, two falls in the pound, right? One that started almost immediately and that happened kind of gradually. And then last Friday, we had this weird flash crash event, which Alex is going to explain and definitively identify the cause of. I'm so excited. Exactly. Uh, no. Computers? Can I say computers? <laughs> That's usually uh, the answer. Exactly. So anyways, let's start with the first, I guess, more fundamental problem. Mary, the UK leaving the EU, why is this bad or why is it good? Well, people are predicting that there will be a recession in the first half of 2017 as a result because it sort of severs, it removes their beneficial position within the EU. And it also sort of limits, you know, you have a lot of concern that all these these corporations are going to have to exit um, because there's no free uh, movement of labor anymore. Then all these companies will have to relocate their London headquarters. Um, there's questions around Deutsche Bank, around pretty much every major institution that is not um, headquartered domiciled in London will have to move its, its operations from from London. And so that basically means that, you know, there's a trickle down, sorry to use it, where that has major impact all across 
the country. And, you know, I think that has a bunch of distressed investors that I talk to very excited. But um, that's the only that's the only real joy that you can find around it. You said institutions. This very much includes financialist institutions, the ones based in London, their ability, uh, their passporting rights, their ability to service companies and other businesses and counterparties outside of London. Yep. Okay. Uh, Alex, what do you think? Well, I think that when the distressed guys are the only ones excited, you know, you have a problem because <laughs> that's like, you know, blood in the streets. Oh, awesome. Let's go buy everything. Um, Is that what your sources are saying? That the distressed guys are fired up right now? Well, that, everybody else is upset. For a reason, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that it, it is sort of funny because, you know, I keep going back to, to demographics. Um, the UK does seem to be struggling with um, productivity, just like the rest of the EU. They're, they're just like the issues that they're trying to solve are like clearly not going to be solved by the decision to leave the EU. So it's like, you know, you see that you have some like terrible to go back to the illness thing for whatever reason. It's like seeing that you have some terrible illness and then saying like, oh, I'm going to cut off my foot is that that'll help it. You know, it just it's sort of a like the beaches of capital markets. Right, right. It's like you can understand what's animating people's desire to sort of like take back their, I don't know, fate or economic fates or something. But like this is so clearly not the way to do it. It's a little tragic. Yeah. I've been kind of intrigued by the arguments back and forth on whether or not there will be some kind of internal rebalancing effect that will have some healthy benefits for the UK. Uh, The argument I think goes something like this. The UK before Brexit um, had, number one, a very powerful and concentrated comparative advantage in the city of London, right, uh, in the financial sector, and also the London housing market and maybe Mm -hmm. the housing market in one or two other places in the UK uh, was considered to be itself uh, a store of safe assets. And it ended up driving up prices for everybody else, essentially, that because those house prices went up, it created a problem for other people. And also it raised the value of the pound, perhaps to unnatural levels, but certainly to levels that would have harmed, say, the manufacturing sectors in other parts of the country outside of London, right? And so now when you get Brexit, you get the devaluation of the pound that might help some of those peripheral uh, sectors. And you get what some might say is a long overdue flattening or even a decline uh, in housing prices in London, and you get maybe some of the wind taken out of the sails of the financial sector there. Uh, And so you end up with a more equal situation for the people who live in the UK, even if overall the size of the economic uh, pie there doesn't grow quite as quickly as it used to. Uh, I have my problems with this, but I want to hear what you guys think about that. I think it's, I think you're right. It's kind of a a thrilling experiment in some ways where, okay, sure, turn inward. Like, let's see how this goes. Um, I was there in July, sort of right after the fact, and and I was talking to some builders and construction workers, and they were sort of saying that, you know, it used to, nowadays, you can't find everybody's Polish who works in these various, you know, buildings and, and, and companies. And, and it used to be Irish people, and it used to be this and that, and, and that there will be a return to that. And they have actually gotten more contracts in recent, you know, weeks. It had been, I think, literally two weeks. But but they were saying that there's this, this hope that maybe there will be some kind of, you know, micro economic benefit where some of the businesses will be revitalized in some ways. And that is a wonderful hope. And I, you know, for the sake of those people, I hope that that's true. For, uh, Alex, what do you think? Yeah, well, it's another funny thing is that everyone wants inflation to rise globally. And so the pound falling off a cliff would help accomplish that. Apparently, yeah, um, it would help reflate, yeah, reflate yeah, the economy. Yeah, somehow. Um, or you know, just 
make inflation higher, and then that turns into stagflation, which uh, is not the best thing to have. Um, but I think, I mean, even even just the process of you know companies leaving, companies deciding whether to leave or stay, it's going to be so complicated and so long and drawn out. Like. Yes, legally I, even, right. it's going to yeah, be hugely complicated. Exactly. Yeah. This is and what's so, giving the distressed investors pause. They have to mm-hmm. wait. Yeah, and, it, and of course, talking about the redistributing some of the wealth out to the country, it's like, well, I mean, if the lawyers live there, then great, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like the lawyers who live in the country will be spending lots of money, I'm sure, because they'll have tons of work. But I think it's probably a little early to actually tell whether that argument has any legs. Yeah, it, yeah. it's also, I mean... Let's say hypothetically that that does prove true, right? It also signals something really unfortunate about the policy environment now, a kind of lack of creativity where, well, you were in this situation where uh, growth could have been much faster. And if you just come up with a policy that would have distributed it better, everybody would be richer. Instead, you've resorted to this kind of isolationism as your redistributive mechanism because it was the one policy lever available, right? That would seem kind of unfortunate. I still worry about a couple of things though. Uh, One is that even though the fall in the pound seems like an appropriate reaction to what happened, the reason it's appropriate is because the prospect for future living standards have fallen, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing is that um, the UK is part of like a big global and especially European supply chain process. And if you have these new rules governing how the UK does business with the rest of Europe, I think it's going to be a big disruption there. It's not so simple just to start moving things around, move it to the US, move it to China or whatever, where those supply chains are already established. And finally, if you're a business who's thinking about setting up in the UK, yeah, okay, the pound has fallen. And maybe you're still welcome there, but if you're worried about selling to the rest of Europe, you still might not. You still might refrain from yeah. going there. You know. To your point about the um, the contracts and the, the fact that they still do exist in a complicated world that has a supply chain, et cetera, that reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend recently, um, where we were sort of taught. He he was asserting that that we've moved so far in this technological advance um, and made so much progress in that space that that it's almost debilitated our um, political systems. And I'm not sure if he quite made the point that capitalism was broken, although Bill Gross might. Um, the, <laughs> the idea being, you know, you can't unscramble the eggs. We have, you know, a lot of what's driven this ire and this angst among people who want to kind of close the borders and who want things to go back to, you know, when America was great. A lot of what they're really angry at is technological progress and like robots, but it's hard to be mad at robots and because you can't necessarily see them. And it's hard to argue that you want to un-internet and it's really hard to probably execute that. So a lot of the a lot of the problem there is like there's no way to go back. And you're right that the framework, you know, maybe was insufficient to deal with those changes. But what the new framework should have been, it's sort of a missed opportunity. You just verbed on internet, and mm-hmm. that was a really great moment in yeah. Alpha Chat history. I Thank think. Thank you. Okay, I hope our UK colleagues have enjoyed us judging them. Sorry. Um, but uh, last topic uh, for Alex, Mary, and I are going to gang up on you, Alex. Um, we are going to talk market structure in uh, the right. FX market specifically. My favorite. Um, yes. Last week, after the decline in the pound had started. Last Friday morning in Asia, overnight in the U.S. and London, really intense decline uh, from, I think, roughly 124 to like 118, and then it rebounded almost as quickly as it had fallen. What the hell happened? (laughs) (laughs) That's such a great question. Um, Okay, so 
I, I guess um, taking a step back a little bit, it's funny because market structure is sort of an intimidating topic. And I was just kidding before when I was saying it's super, super nerdy. Um, but it's really just a topic about regulations. Like it's it's really like secretly about rules. Everyone uses a lot of complicated language and they say a lot of, you know, really complex things. Lots of acronyms. Yeah, all the acronyms, any acronym you can think of, they're, they're going to have it. But it's really just about the way that people in a market respond to the rules of that market. And FX is really interesting because it's essentially unregulatable. Like a government isn't going to regulate the trading of another government's currency. Like you can't say if you're the United States government, okay – you know, you UK currency, you can't do that. You know, right. it just it's not a thing that anyone can do. And so I think that that puzzle, um, what exactly happened, you know, who hit the button first that made the the pound fall so far? I mean, it's hard to even know, even even in markets that are regulated, it's almost impossible to figure that sort of thing out. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think... It's really it's an interesting point because I do think people have been talking about, you know, computerized trading is, is a really big bugaboo right now. And part of it is that, like, you can see how, like, a computer sort of disappearing at a certain time or, you know, buying back in at, at only the good times and not the bad times. You mean all um, the computers essentially deciding the same thing yeah. at the same time because they've been programmed similarly? Exactly. Or, you know, just programmed well even because you don't mm -hmm. want to be the person buying on the way down right and selling on the way up and so if the computers are very good at trading then like they won't be doing that <laughs> so but that's also bad because that means that when something's falling that fast it's going to fall farther it keeps going yeah. exactly so, I mean, to put this in concrete terms hypothetically let's say uh the pound goes from 124 to 122 you don't want to be the one computer buying at 122 when everybody else is selling because it's just going to keep falling, and then you're going to be the computer that loses money. Exactly. Um, not nice to computers that lose money. No, 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 no. We don't like them. Yeah, they get turned off, and then <laughs> and then you have no computers <laughs> buying at 122. But and it's also interesting because you know you were talking before about people getting really worked up about immigration. Um, and it almost seems like the talk about computerized trading has that some like that emotional charge to it. Definitely. Because I think you know, traders traders jobs becoming automated is I mean it's it's sort of one of the earlier phases of automation of middle class upwardly mobile jobs, and so it's really uh, interesting to watch that sort of thing because the way it's playing out in public conversation is very different from what's actually going on. I mean, just because a thing falls really quickly and then bounces back up doesn't mean that there's something, you know, inherently wrong in the market. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did anyone get hurt? It's not necessarily. No, no. Yeah. That's been a big thing watching the, the hand wringing around bond market liquidity and others where it's like, OK, at what point are we just like saving people from investment losses? Like, mm -hmm. is that is that what we're here to do? And are we just is everything supposed to continue up? And when there's like a 10 percent correction and everyone starts crying for the Fed, like, is that a healthy response? And should that be encouraged? Right. Underlying that question is, why should anybody care? Right. In other words, right. the pound falls to 118 and then goes back and everybody like, says, okay. oh, my God, look how fast it happened. Other than whichever one of those computers did lose money. OK. And whoever owns the computers. Why should the rest of us societally care unless there is a bigger vulnerability that that points to and maybe we just got lucky because maybe the next time the thing goes to parity or something and it shouldn't have, right? Because there is a sense in which if it had fallen instead of by 6%, if it had fallen by 40%, then people might get hurt, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess that's a very overarching difficult question to answer is why should anybody care? 
think in this particular situation, people should care because it does show that it's an unregulated market. You know, it's because it's really all about how the rules are set up. So when it happens in the stock market, you know, you have people there watching saying, "Okay, well, you know, we're going to call this trade, you know, we're we're just going to cancel that one out and say, "Okay, you guys don't even have to make good on this. Um, But in the FX market, there's no sort of central person watching. And I think that that is why this matters. And I do think that it matters, but not because of the numbers on the screen. It matters because it just shows people, you know, we don't actually know what the rules of these markets are even like you've got you've got people running the markets and the platforms where the, this, this stuff is trading but you can't log on to their website and see like oh what happened that day it's just not available right so. uh probably not a coincidence though that the pound had already been falling a lot of uncertainty surrounding the pound but for the most part all of the talk was negative downward pressure on the pound, and it continued to fall later on. Um, It seems like uh, the vulnerabilities end up exacerbating, or maybe that's the wrong word, but intensifying a trend that was going to happen anyways. Does that sound like an accurate description of this? Oh, definitely. Um, I think that it's pretty rare. I mean, I can't actually think of any situation in which the computer has just gone crazy and pushed, you know, a whole market at least. I mean, it happens with individual stocks from time to time, but things that big generally don't happen unless there's already a trend. Like, you know, a a computer program isn't going to start a trend. It might pile onto a trend, but it's not going to be the spark that actually starts the whole process. Which is sort of the conversation around risk parity, right? Mm -hmm. Where people are like, oh, this is exactly because they're selling when selling is already happening. It's exacerbating the existing trend. And it's like, well, but if it weren't a robot, wouldn't it be a human doing that? So (laughs) it's a little bit of a, there are a couple of flaws that you can, if you pull the threads, it sort of falls apart. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, people respond very strongly to it and, and it may absolutely have some truth in there. It's just a matter of sussing out. Okay. We are going to do long form recommendations. Alex, first time on the show, you get to go first. So I just read Imagining a Cashless World uh, from The New Yorker, and it's a really fun story because it talks about everything from, you know, the really broad concepts like what is money, right? Like, is it a piece of cash that you have in your hand? Is it numbers on a screen? I mean, it's really both. But it talks about banking policy, and it also brings you to nightclubs in Sweden. It brings you to, you know, a train in Sweden where the teller isn't allowed to handle money. Um, It's just a really good way to show the actual on-the-ground implications of something so big as a move away from cash. Also, the subject of a new Ken Rogoff book, uh, The Cashless yes. Society, did it come up? Yes, it's it's sort of a review of that. And then they actually went on the ground to Sweden to talk about what it's like in a country without cash. There's, there's a, an issue with the cashless society that I always wonder about. It has to do mostly with like the civil libertarian critique of going away from cash, which is that every time you spend money you're effectively going to be asking permission of your bank or whatever financial institution processes the transaction to do it. And then you lose the privacy as well. That already happens for a lot of the things we buy, but you still get that. You still have that option. If you want to pay something in cash, you will lose that option forever with no alternative in a cashless society. Yeah, it's true. I mean, he talked a little bit about the the social trust in Sweden just being higher. And so they're not necessarily scared of their government saying like, oh, you can't do this one thing. Um, and so they did say in the book, and I think this was a point that Rogoff made, um, it's actually going to be a lot harder to get that sort of thing adopted in the United States where the trust isn't quite as high in, in government. 
specifically. Um, I wonder why. Yeah, I know, so right? Who Maybe they can try it in Canada. Who would have thought? <laughs> Mary, what is your long-form recommendation? Um, speaking of politics, I'm recommending an issue. New York Mag just had their Obama issue, and it's a reflection on eight years and what has changed, and it's actually pretty fascinating to think because it's sort of it includes all those like memes that happened in you know 2010 and you're like that you know I guess that was a significant moment and and you get to sort of it's a weird excavation of of the past eight years and what's changing and why it matters and how it got us to where we are any critical takes in that issue I'm spacing I asked because uh, there's some overlap between your recommendation and mine oh. uh, the new issue of wired is guest edited by Barack Obama he must have um, been so busy. I know. Like, did wasn't there anything else He's going not even on? Lame duck like a global crisis yeah. or something. He seems to be having a blast. He's having a great. Time. Maybe he's checked out. I don't know. Uh, he but did the, just sniff his arm last or this week to confirm he's not a demon. Yes, that he didn't smell like sulfur. Mm -hmm. Yes, but it includes uh, an interview with Obama and with Joy Ito of the MIT Media Lab, and it's all about essentially whether or not our jobs are vulnerable to being taken over by automation, by robots, the unique uh, challenges that that trend is going to present, and also the opportunities. Uh, he did say notably that he thinks that the arguments around a universal basic income are going to be elevated, are going to be heightened in the next like two decades or so. He thinks that it seems to be a viable topic of conversation now, even for policymakers, and that was really interesting for me to see. That is interesting. This isn't long form, but I want to throw another one out there. There was a Washington Post article today that showed the number of jobs created per new IPO. So there's this cool chart where it it become you know it's this big kind of sea of IPOs that have you know been around for a while now and created a ton of jobs. And then as you go down the time horizon, it sort of starts to peter and it becomes pretty marginal. And so like the most recent ones added like you know thirty jobs. So it's actually it's an <laughs> that's an exaggeration, but it, it's a it's an interesting chart because it sort of illustrates that point of that that trend and what we you know what might be the implications. Is some of that though, just the fact that uh, companies are waiting longer before they go there's public, also that, uh, yeah. and so they're not in that growth phase, maybe. I don't know. What I do know uh, is that this has been a blast. Alex, I hope you enjoyed coming on as much as we enjoyed harassing you about market structure. It was very fun. Good. Feel free to harass me whenever. Indeed. Uh, Mary, we pulled you out of the bullpen at the last minute. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Send us an email to alphachat at ft.com or you can call us at 917-551-5012. That is a U.S. number and the country code is plus one if you're overseas. Please, please, please leave a review and rate the show on iTunes. It really does help people find us. You can also find show notes and links to what we just discussed at ft.com forward slash alphachat. I post that every Friday morning. Finally, I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. The U.S. and the U.K. have a lot of troubles, but so long as the Canadian Amy Keene is established here in New York in the FT's offices, we have the edge. Thanks for everything, Amy, our producer and editor, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. 
Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.